The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of Dorn all the way up to the lands of always winter, this is Casterly Tuck. I'm Ken Napsuck for a special edition. They're all special, but it's just me tonight. So I guess that makes it unspecial and not very special. Special to me. Hey, everybody. Enough of the dramatic intros. It's Casterly Talk, episode eight. Thank you all who enjoyed last week's episode with Michelle Boyd and some technical problems. We're trying to learn some stuff here on Anchor, where I've been on for a very long time with Daily Thrones. This is the same feed, but uh, putting putting a new sponsor in. Something got messed up. Not really on my end. It may even happen again this week. This episode may cut off now. Kidding, I'm still here. But thank you all. I love talking Game of Thrones with Michelle Boyd and much more to come. Of course, Lon Harris, Andres Cabrera, Rachel Cushing, an all-star team, and me of Game of Thrones talkers. A quick note to my friends over at Collider. Uh, Collider Video, more specifically, and Collider Podcast. Make sure you check out Ashley Robinson and Dennis Zen, who I had a great time talking Game of Thrones with last year on the uh, Collider's uh, Thrones talk show, or yeah, whatever we called it, I can't remember. They got a better name this year. They just launched a a podcast. I'm sure they'll do video as well. Uh, but it is, but don't quote me on that. I don't work there. Uh, but it's uh, What the Throne. I love that title. Ashley and Dennis are going to be breaking down a lot of Game of Thrones. And I bring it up because uh, I, I want to be transparent. I was I was offered to be part of the Collider team this year for some more Game of Thrones coverage. I uh, Gracious offer. I turned down the offer to concentrate on Casterly Talk. And quite frankly, I just think I, I'm talking too much in too many places. I don't want you guys to get sick of me yet. Which is actually why Casterly Talk is uh, has Lon and Andres and Rachel and Michelle and other people coming in here. I don't want it just to be me. Tonight it is with the special uh, Ruminations in the Realm segment uh, from our friend Sir Thomas Sattel, Thomas Risling. Uh, that's coming up here in a bit. But anyways, I want to bring that up because you can enjoy all the content. I'm very open here uh, on, on what we uh, do here at Casterly Talk, what we're trying to do, much like over at Force Center, my Star Wars feed with Joseph Scrimshaw and Jennifer Landa. We celebrate Star Wars. We're celebrating Game of Thrones, the world of ice and fire, song of ice and fire, fire and blood, all the things and the things to come. A lot to talk about. In fact, when the show wraps up this year, we'll keep going here, Casterly Talk. Maybe two episodes a month, just kind of discussing uh, the prequel. It will soon be uh, the thing we talk about the most. Let's not forget that. And then uh, the rest of it. And then maybe, you know, a sixth book wins a winner. A lot of fun diving into that. So stick with us here, but enjoy what they're doing at Collider. Go enjoy other, uh, you know, channels and podcasts. Uh, History of Westeros, All Shift X, uh, Charlie Snyder over at Emergency Awesome. Always does great Game of Thrones content, and there's a lot of other people out there. I celebrate the entire community. I am a fan just as much as you. I want you all to listen. I want you to enjoy Casterly Talk, but you don't need to be brand loyal just to me. I am not Charmin. I'm just a generic uh, tissue, toilet tissue on the shelf. Why are we talking about that, Ken? I don't know. Anyways, that's that. Check out Collider's show, What the Throne. Uh, enjoy that. I, and I will probably will stop by at some point and, and uh, talk on the, on the show. Uh, Dennis, uh, I haven't talked Game of Thrones with Ashley yet, but with Dennis, that was some of the most fun I had at Collider. Dennis is a very quiet, subdued guy. You know, he's, uh, he's calm, cool, collected, 
runs a lot of behind the scenes stuff there. But holy moly, you get him talking about Game of Thrones. It is uh, the the energy, the passion pours out of him. So I'm looking forward to see what they're doing there. That was just a little bit of housekeeping up top this week since it's by myself uh, i wanted to uh, kind of pluck from my own little game of thrones fan brain i am at the time of uh, this recording just starting season seven on my rewatch i did it we got through we are gonna get done before season eight hits more importantly before i leave for star wars celebration it's gonna be done me and my very special lady friend my own uh red-headed priestess to my Stannis, though she doesn't like Stannis, uh, Heather Grace Hancock, uh, we uh, uh, sat down and really just rolled up our sleeves and we're like, we're doing this. We're doing this. She joined me on my rewatch in season two. She's picked it up from there and we just started, uh, we're through episode one of season seven. We just got through Dragonstone. I love that. I love that episode. I love Danny arriving on Dragonstone. It's, some of, it's just some of the best work in game. Just silence. Just silence to her final line. Uh, I love that a lot there. And then Grace went back with her mom. Her mom came down, and then they watched, like, season one and I think poked around other places. I just kept getting a lot of texts. They were watching it by themselves. I kept getting texts. Who's this? What's this guy want again? Who's she? What's that dragon's name? And I love those questions. So because I'm at that point in my rewatch, and this uh, Castle Talk has been all about getting ready for season eight, that final push, getting in GOT watching shape, getting in GOT shape as we... Uh, but doing here, I want to look ahead to season eight based off some little things that have popped up during my rewatch. And I think we'll do this again if I have to do another solo episode before the show comes back. Just kind of my unfiltered thoughts here, my little questions. And maybe you have some of these questions. I am talking about plot threads and stories whose endings we we want those answers, but they're that they're in the back of our mind. Meaning, let me let me clarify. Season 8, it's the final one. This is for the throne. This is for all the marbles. This is for the Battle of Winterfell. This is for the War for the Dawn, the fight against the dead, for the living. It's big questions. We have a lot of questions, as we do every season going in to Game of Thrones. But what I have found, and maybe this is just me, and I, and I really, uh, watching season 6, which... It's hard to call season six an underrated season of Game of Thrones because the Battle of the Bastards is so big and epic and so well done. And then you got Cersei getting her revenge and blowing up the Sept of Baelor. That episode is brilliant. And, and that whole sequence might be, might be the best in all of Game of Thrones. I mean, that's saying a lot, but you know what I mean? Like that whole sequence. And the time the episode starts and the, and the light of the seven uh, music plays from Roman Jawadi all the way to where she blows it up and she takes that sip of wine. Oh, maybe I'll stop the sequence there. Yeah, you have Tommen's death shortly after all that stuff. But until that, until that moment, might be some of Game of Thrones' best work. So it's hard to call season six underrated. But in my role rewatching, going through it, I was like, man, I, there's a lot going on in season six that I just love. And it started to ask me, cause myself to ask some questions. And also, this is what I thought. Going into every season, we have a lot of plot threads to pick up. A lot going on, especially as the show really picks up. I mean, from season one to two, yes, you have a lot of questions. But season two introduced a lot of new characters, even characters that showed up in season one. And I'm looking at your Shays and your Tywin Lannisters. Maybe maybe Braun. Braun got a lot of action, a lot, a lot of stuff going on for Braun in season one. But even then, definitely more of a regular character. 
But again, even Tywin, Tywin's there, shows up. Episode seven, season one. But season two, Tywin is front and center. Shay is front and center. A lot of those characters, Stannis, Melisandre, Davos, all these characters show up. Brienne, Renly becomes more uh, front and center. He's not there for long. Uh, we got uh, Marjorie Tyrell. All that stuff starts going on, and it really explodes. So season one into two, we have a lot of questions, but more characters popped up, more plot lines popped up. So going into season three, we had just a bevy of questions. And he spent a lot of time trying to connect these dots and predict and all that kind of stuff. And that grows with each season. And you start getting some answers. Um, you start knowing things that are happening and solutions are happening. And going into season six, you start getting a lot of solutions. But but now going into season eight, it's to me this, again, this might just be me. There's this narrow focus going on where we are focused on what is considered maybe the main event. Jon Snow, Daenerys Targaryen, their somewhat tattered, uh, thrown-together, roughshod alliance there, going against the Night King and the Army of the Dead. That's the main event, right? Now, we all know that I think beyond that, you got Cersei to deal with. We got hashtag for the throne, you see those those pictures going around now? Where they're, they're putting the throne uh, in all the locations. I love them. I, on Game of Thrones on Instagram. It's a great follow if you don't. They do a lot of cool stuff on the Game of Thrones official Instagram feed. Check it out. This is about the, the throne, right? This is this is what is is uh, in our minds. We got the Night King, and then we got what we, we believe will come after, which is maybe a reckoning for Cersei, something with Cersei. And maybe, you know, I, I, I am focused on that being the order, but maybe it's that. Maybe Cersei dies in episode two and then the Night King fights. I, I don't think so. I doubt that, but we don't know. Um, so I was thinking the other day, you know, these big questions. We, you know, we're having these big questions, talking to Grace, talking to other people, these, these big questions. How, what's going to happen to the Night King? Are they going to win? When will the win? When will the victory happen? Who's going to go in that fight? Then I started thinking, there is still some, some questions I have. Characters and, and, and threads and stories. They need answers. That might we might get those answers, and they might be completely satisfying, or maybe they're not. So here's three. I want to talk about three, and there might be more to come. And I, and I will want to hear yours uh, at some point too. Share uh, share using the hashtag Casterly Talk, especially if you're on Twitter. Follow me at Ken Napsack. Um So here's three just questions that I have going into season eight that I had in my rewatch. Number three. Theon Greyjoy, Theon and the Greyjoys. What happens to Theon, and where does he factor in to this final season? Theon Greyjoy, portrayed excellently by Alfie Allen, has been here the entire time. He is a season one, episode one character. So to me, even though there are some characters that have passed on, We'll see you. We'll see you down the line. Ned Stark, Roger Cassell, Jorah Cassell, all those characters. So even though there's some of those characters that have been there, Theon's one of the main ones. I would call Theon a main character that's been there. Season one, episode one. We've been following him. We spent a lot of time with him. And I know a lot of people. Sometimes the Greyjoy stories don't entertain and, and pull people in. They're not enth- as enthralling as some of the other ones. And I understand that it's dark and drab. What Theon goes through with Ramsay is is depressing, uh, disturbing at times. Frustrating at times, you know, in story. What happens to Theon, though? Where's his place? 
we think all we like, what's the place of Arya Stark? That's an, what's the place of Bran Stark? And those are questions too. We'd answer to, but Theon Greyjoy, when we last saw him, he is finding himself. It took a while. He's been a shattered shell of himself since quite frankly, uh, the end of season two. I think he starts realizing some of his mistakes there. It's, the Theon we knew in season one is long gone, thankfully, for for a lot of uh, from a lot of point of views points of view there. Um, but here he is now, season seven has his big coward runaway brave Sir Robin running away moment there. I feel for him in that moment. It's easy to make fun of Theon Greyjoy, the character in that moment, dives over the head. Put yourself in his. Are you? Do you think you can take on Euron after what you've just seen? What he's just seen? I, you know, would I, would I jump over? I don't know. I might. It's my sister. I might have charged in, but then I think I'd be dead. I'm not condoning Theon jumping over the side. I'm not condoning it at all. And I understand why his men wouldn't respect him, especially with the Greyjoys. But by the end of season seven. He finds himself. He finds himself. Now, where does he factor in? I don't recall really seeing him. I know this is not a live show, so correct me if I'm wrong, though. I don't recall seeing him in the promos. I don't recall seeing him figuring prominently in the Battle of Winterfell. We don't know. Maybe he's down there doing something else. To me, that doesn't necessarily mean not seeing any character in the trailer doesn't mean those characters are dead, especially not the case for Theon. Game of Thrones, we know. A Song of Ice and Fire, we know. That's, uh, there's a realistic take on a lot of stories. Just look at Ned Stark. Just look at Rob Stark. Look at Catelyn Stark. Uh, people that you want to have some sort of justice. People that you like. I, I even look at Mance Raider. Like, come on. He deserves something. He's gone, at least in the show. Uh, so we know... Characters that deserve a happy ending don't really get one. So I'm not saying Theon gets one. But I I really do look at Theon going back to a season one, episode one character of needing something to happen to him. Something in the story. I don't think he dies. I don't think he has a heroic moment. Now, again, we're not doing a pool. We're not putting down money in a pool. If we were taking bets, I think Theon has a high percent chance of dying. But follow me out on this little thought thread here. Where does he factor in? Euron is on the high seas. Euron is on the high seas with the Golden Company. He's factoring in there. Euron needs a comeuppance. Now, I'm fascinated by the idea that uh, after the Night King, uh, we've got Cersei and maybe the Golden Company, Euron, and a lot of other people to help her on her side, and that's part of the final thing. I don't think we're getting just one big battle this year. So I don't necessarily think Theon takes out Euron before all that, but perhaps in an effort to avenge Yara, to rescue Yara, I should say, because she's still out there. I, I, I could see, I don't just see Theon dying in that. I don't, I really don't. I don't see the, the character of Theon Greyjoy paying back his sister and rescue, trying to rescue her when, when he, she did the same for him early on and he, he failed to go with her, all that stuff. Um, I don't see him dying in that act. I, it wouldn't make, even for Game of Thrones, wouldn't necessarily make that much sense. So when the dust settles, where's Theon Greyjoy? It's one of the big questions. And where, uh, where do the Greyjoys themselves end up? If Danny breaks the wheel, if there is still a throne... Uh, 
I still think doesn't nece- isn't necessarily the case. I think a lot of people think that. But if there is some semblance of, of Westeros as we know it at the end of all this, where do the Greyjoys factor in? When Yara stands before Danny and says, let's team up, going back to season six, Danny makes it clear, yep, well, I'll take your help, but you cannot do what you all have been doing. No raving, no reaving, no raping, no pillaging, no gray join. And Yara, even in that position where she is putting herself at her mercy at the mercy before Daenerys is like said, Well, but that's our way. Yeah, that can't be your way anymore. Which again lends to this idea of breaking the wheel, and that's part of what Danny wants to do, what what Danny might succeed in doing. Um, so even then, the question isn't just Theon, the question is the Greyjoys. Can they start anew again? Theon, it took a lot to convince his fellow Ironborn to, uh, number one, give them his, uh, you know, give him their respect, I should say, uh, and go off and, and, and save Yarrow, where that's where season seven ends for them. It took a lot. Greyjoys have a certain way about him, and it ain't the friendliest. So now that he has them. And let's say they do rescue Yar. Let's say it all works out. They kill Euron, or Euron is dead, gets his comeuppance, and they have what's left of the Iron Fleet, and uh, they have some newfound loyalties, uh, refound loyalties amongst their people. I'm fascinated to see what becomes of the Greyjoys in this potential new world, uh, new world, or at least uh, where we are at the end of the season. So that's my third thing out of three here. Number two, talked about it before because it is so close to my heart. That is... Jorah. Jorah the Endal. All right. If you listen to me ramble long enough about Game of Thrones, you know Jorah's probably, yeah, for all intents and purposes, my favorite character in Game of Thrones. One I identify with the most. Good things and bad things in saying that. But I do love Sir Jorah Mormont. Nine Glenn is so good as him. And there you talk about a season one character. Jorah has definitely uh, been around. And I think... A lot of people would say, I hope agree with me, that Jorah deserves some sort of happiness. That that happiness, I don't believe, is going to be with Daenerys Targaryen. But I thought Jorah was going to die in Season 7. Taking on uh, the main, kind of a main plot thread of another character in the books uh, was what this whole thing with Jorah and the Grayscale was, right? And for those who haven't read the books, I don't want to spoil it. It is another character, but that is... Um, that was given to Jorah. So it was a little interesting. I was afraid. I've been afraid of, I've been afraid for Jorah since season three, four. Uh, I mean, I mean, quite frankly, probably been afraid for Jorah since uh, you first meet him. Uh, or at least for me, once, once, once Ned dies, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, any character can go. Right. Cause I wasn't as familiar with the story then as I am now, obviously I hadn't read the books yet. Uh, once that happened, that's why it's so big. It's like, it just takes television and storytelling as we know it and, and, and scares us. So I was like, oh, I, one of my first thoughts after Ned went was, oh, Jorah's probably not for long for this world. So I've been afraid to see Jorah go for a long time. I thought season seven was it. I didn't know if he'd survive the grayscale. When Danny sends him off uh, in season six, one of, one of the more heart-wrenching moments in Game of Thrones, especially for me as a Jorah fan, uh, Tyrion Lannister was right. I do love you. Um, great scene. I, I didn't know if he would survive. I didn't know if that we'd see him again. Then season seven pops up 
and he's cured. And it happens fast. Look, season seven happens fast. We don't want to debate that there. Um, but you know what? In the grand scheme of things, what did I did I want six episodes of Jorah struggling with Grayscale at the Citadel? No. Sam sees him, saves him out of loyalty and, and uh, kind of homage to Gior Momont. It's, it's beautiful. So he's back. But I thought for, for sure Jorah had returned to die for his queen. And I thought he was going, maybe it was north of the wall, this idea. And it was Michelle Boyd back when we were uh, talking about stuff. Loud. We weren't on the same show last year, but we exchanged texts. She was like, you know what? I bet Jorah is going to be the white that they bring down to show Cersei. Look at this. Look at this dead zombie guy. It used to be our friend Jorah. Cersei, do you believe you remember Jorah? Look at him now. And I was like, how dare you? That's probably going to happen. So when he survived, and pretty much everyone with Thoros Amir survived, uh, now to me it's open, it's open waters for Jorah. But I want to know. I never try to lock myself into certain wants and needs and desires for the story and expectations. I try to take the story as it comes. But I'll tell you this. I want some sort of happiness for Jorah. It's not going to be in the arms of Danny. And I don't necessarily think it's going to be in anyone's arms. I want Jorah to find some sort of peace. He's been at, he's been at war with himself. He's been at conflict with himself, a conflict in his heart. He's been pained. It's one of the things that draws me to Jorah. It isn't just that he's a loyal knight who has, uh, you know, a case of unrequited love blues for Danny. He's a good man, a noble man, a good knight who found himself in a bad spot with a broken heart and did something bad, but for good. You know, stole some bread to feed the hungry. All right. He sold some people, bad people into slavery. Well, I don't want to say they're bad. I don't know. That's not right. But you know what? Jorah did what he had to do. It was wrong. And he took, he took... That's the thing about Jorah. He gets banished from the land and he took his punishment. I love that when Jor Mormont tells Jon Snow, you know, my son uh, at least had the decency to leave uh, the sword behind, Longclaw. So I, I love Jorah so much. If he's to die, and he's high on the list of people who might die, I hope in his final moments he has some sort of peace. But I could see him surviving. I don't want to turn Game of Thrones Season 8 into some big, happy, scrappy puppy dog ending. I don't want that. But I do like this idea of Jorah finding some kind of peace. Again, I don't know where, we're, where we are at the end of this. When I say the wheel might be broken, it could mean the land as we know it. No Iron Throne, democracy in the land, or it's no longer really the Seven Kingdoms, and things are kind of like they are. There's just some scars on the world, right? Maybe in that scenario, Jorah returns to Bear Island. Uh, says, I don't want, you know, Leanna Mormont, it's, it's yours. You're doing great. Take it, but I just want to, I'm home. I'm home. He is a knight in exile. He's been all around this land. Maybe... Maybe the peace he can find is just in the simple act of returning home. That's my second big question. These minor little plot points I want answers for. The number one, and there's going to be more, hopefully some of yours, and we'll get some from Lon and, 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 and Rachel and Andres and the rest of the crew. But the number one thing on my mind, and I was looking at the trailer for season eight, and it started with uh, a specific person. Then I quickly thought, nah, it might not be. My question isn't necessarily about him; it's about his people, and that is Tormund Giantsbane. But more specifically, and actually 
not not so specific. The free folk as as a as a as an entire just group and storyline. Tormund's people, all of them, all the clans, even those thens. I hate fucking thens. I don't know if Tormund's gonna live. Yes, we all maybe or some of us would like to see Tormund and Brienne skip off into the sunset hand in hand and have some big, uh, wonderful. Uh, vicious, uh, sword-wielding babies. But I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think Tormund... I don't think Tormund's going to last long. I still... This is one of the only straight-out predictions I have from that trailer. I still think Tormund, Beric, and Ed in that scene are stumbling onto some trouble. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I love all three of those characters. So that's why my thoughts switched from just Tormund, who is a spectacular character... Switches from torment, and it goes for me to the free folk as a whole. When the show starts, we are plainly told the wildings, the wildlings, excuse me, are bad people. They're part of the enemies. We have the Lannisters, boo hiss. We don't like Viserys, boo hiss. You're not sure about Baelish and Varys, boo hiss a little bit. We got some bad people. And that includes the Wildlings because the Night's Watch is honorable. Tyrion tells us, he tells Jon Snow what they are, but you look at Jor Mormont and Maester Aemon, Yorin, and of course, Benjen Stark, and you see the honor of the Night's Watch. It's on display there. I really believe in it. I do, you know, I'm partial to the Night's Watch. I just love the concept. There's something about it not partaking in the battles and the politics of the land, but defending the realm. But that's the thing. They're set up. They're set up. And, you know, so we'll get the official answer maybe in a series in a book somewhere. I don't know. They're set up to defend the realm from what we all know is out there, what they all knew at the time was out there, which is the White Walkers, the others. The wall is built. The Night's Watch is there. But over time... Those stuck on the other side become the enemy. And when the threat of the White Walkers and the others disappears, fades into memory, the glory and honor of the Night's Watch is no more. It's not what that, it's not for that. It is it becomes against keeping those dastardly, nasty wildlings out of our lands. And then the wildlings come south and they Climb the wall, they go around, uh, you know, the Shadow Tower at East Watch by the Sea, and they Pillage and plunder, the gift. They're the bad guys. We learn pretty early on. I think we learn, start learning with OSHA. We see them, they hurt Bran. Again, the bad guys. Wildlings are bad guys. But OSHA starts setting the tone. OSHA's the one that's like, oh, Rob Stark's marching the wrong way. Old winds are rising. She knows that she's seen it. The dead are coming with it. You start to feel there's something else going on. And we like OSHA. We get it. They're just trying to flee. Starts making sense. And we know, we've seen, we get that the we know as an audience the White Walkers are real. We've seen it. So over the course of time, John learns as we do. They're not wildlings. They're free folk. They're on the other side of the wall. I love that moment, season two. They're in the stuff with Egret, where John's like, hey, you know, 
I'm the son of Ned Stark. The blood of the first men runs through my veins just as much as you. Oh, Egret points out, then why are you fighting us? It is one of the key questions in the life and times of Jon Snow and one of the key questions in our life as a viewer. Especially if you hadn't read the books and you weren't familiar with the story and all this is rolling out in front of you. You know, we like Egret. She's fun. She's uh, intriguing. She's a little dangerous. She makes fun of Jon Snow. Tra-la-la-la-la dresses. Love it. Love Egret. Rose Leslie's great. But we learn a lot. I talked about this in Daily Thrones before. We learn a lot from Egret. Jon Snow learns a lot. And it informs so many of his decisions going forward and makes him a true good guy in a show that is shades of gray. And I love these shades of gray. And I love the dark corners. And I love the questioning of what you think you know, including the questioning of, oh, they're wildlings? No, they're free folk. They're free folk. Even the dastardly Thens that eat you where you stand, and they do bad things. We see it. I get, I get Ollie. I get Ollie. I, I you know, hang him, John. Good. I'm good with hanging Ollie, but I, I got it. They killed his family right in front of him, and then I'm gonna eat him. I'm gonna eat your mama. I'm gonna eat your papa. Yeah, I, I, I'd have a problem with the Thens too and the free folk as a concept, but we're supposed to learn that. So John learns that, and so where I am wondering. Specifically, what I'm wondering going in to season eight is what becomes of the free folk? They are part of this fight. Tormund is our poster boy, our poster child for the free folk right now. We love Tormund. He's part of the team now. But there's still some tensions. We know it's there. I think, though, if you're in the north right now and you've just seen or have heard of the wall coming down and you've survived and the army of the dead is marching your way, now you might start to care less if they're wildlings or free folk. You understand. But south, the more south you go, the age-old concept of them being the enemy still exists. It'll be interesting to see how people react to them. So going back to some of these other questions I've uh, proposed here. What becomes of the Greyjoys and their ways in this potential new world? What becomes of Jorah Mormont? What becomes of him if he goes home, if he gets a chance to go home, and Leanne is still in control, and what peace can he find in that in this new world? I'm curious to see if we'll get anything about the free folk in the new world with that wall down. We'll see how much of that wall does fall down. Right now, it's just a section by the East Watch by the Sea. But if I'm the Night King... I use that frost fire to burn down that wall, and while my army is slowly marching in, we know they take their time when they want to. I'm taking, and plus if they're pulling chains, I'm taking that ice dragon Viserion, and I'm just, I'm burning down the rest of that wall. We'll see what he does. We can talk about Night King strategies another time. But if at the end of all this, the wall is not the wall... And the idea of the wildlings being the enemy is not there. I do want to see something with a, an acceptance of the free folk into this new world. The wheel is truly broken. That should include the north, the true north. And I would love to see that moment. If Tormund survives, and again, I, I think that's a long shot. 
sad to say. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not, I'm not much for making great predictions. I make them bad. Um, I've been saying this show's going to end, the season's going to end with the wall coming down for like four years. Eventually I got it right, but broken clocks and all that. Um, if Tormund survives, again, he's the, he's the leader of the free folk and, and the one, our, our gateway, our, our viewpoint into the free folk now, now that egret has gone and Mance is gone. Is there, could there be in this new world that the wheel's broken, whether Danny's alive or not, whether John's around or not, I don't know. Whether Tyrion's in charge or, or Sansa, I'd love to see some kind of uh, uh, acceptance of the Free Folk and some kind of moment where this was Mance's dream in a way. Mance just wanted to get south of the Wall to save his people. He was understandably but somewhat frustra- frustratingly stubborn in Season 5. I love that scene. I love that scene where Jon Snow's like, you're making a wrong decision, wrong choice, and Mance says, that's all I wanted. I love that. I believe I believe in Mance in that moment. I understand Mance in that moment. Later on, I do find it interesting that Jon's like, tells Tormund, don't do what Mance did. Save your people. But I think it's a different scenario. If you're Mance, you got to bow to Stannis. Even though I like Stannis, I can understand why Mance doesn't. I think it's diff- different with Tormund. It, at that point, he and the Free Folk aren't bending the knee necessarily to Jon Snow. It's a different situation. It's a different scenario. And then Jon, in turn, runs into the same problem with Danny. She's like, bend the knee, young man. And he's like, nope. And well, we saw how that goes. But it was an interesting, it's an interesting thing. But each scenario to me is different. I think when he's asking Tormund to do it, it's 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 more like we need to do this. This isn't about just principles. This is like what's coming. Uh, and and with Mance, it was like that too. Um, but maybe John learned from that. Maybe John learned from that. But that's a different thing, different thought. But I would love to see a moment where the the the, the mission statement of Mance is recognized. Uh, that there's some sort of celebration of what Mance always wanted. Succeeded in, in, in some way. And the free folk are accepted into the realm. It'd be interesting. So those are some of the questions I have. What are yours? I want to know. We're not done yet, but we'll be back right here, right now, in just a minute for some more Casterly Talk. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. All right, Casterly Talk rolls on as we get ready for Season 8. I can't believe that we're almost there. We, we, was, in rewatching Season 7, I'm befuddled, sorry. In rewatching Season 7, I was like, wow, it just seems like yesterday this season was uh, was wrapping up. Oh, no, it, it was over a year and a half ago. Uh, that's kind of crazy. Patience is a virtue. It pays off, and we are almost there. I... Uh, I'm going to have to watch it on the road. I'll be in Chicago for episode one. I'm trying to work it out. Episode three, I will, I'm will. i supposed to be in Las Vegas, and I might actually change a planned trip 
might delay it. We're talking canceling hotel rooms so I can stay in town, watch Game of Thrones, record Casually Talk, and head on out to Vegas after that. And then something else came up, and I was looking at another, I think, episode five. And I, I, if I was not careful, I was, I was going to plan something. I had something kind of uh, brewing. I would have planned another thing and, and missed and not been at my own home. And not missed is what I keep saying missed, but not been in my own home, which is my preferred way of watching Game of Thrones. So as we get ready for season eight, I think, I think that's one thing we also have to do. Check the calendar. Check the calendar. Make sure you're not going into family uh, reunions, uh, picnics, company parties, birthday parties, uh, bachelor parties. Just avoid parties for those six weeks. You got to factor that in. It's must-see television, and it's our final go-around. And I'm sure... I'm sure that prequel series, I have a lot of faith in it. I really do. I just got a good feeling about it. Uh, I know they added, was Amanda, Miranda Richardson to the cast, I believe. I saw that news note. Um, so interesting stuff. A lot of stuff going on there. Speaking of interesting, right now we've got our segment, Ruminations from the Realm. Great one from Sir Thomas Sittal, Thomas Rizling. And this one's an interesting one about Robert Baratheon. Hi everybody, I'm Thomas Rissling, and welcome back to Ruminations from the Realm here on Casterly Talk. Today we're going to discuss the possibility of King Robert Baratheon sharing blood with the Targaryens. Now I know that's a hefty order to have you believe, so we'll start by doing a little bit of a quick history lesson. And this history lesson takes place all the way back in the days of Aegon's conquest. Oris Baratheon was the founder of House Baratheon and the man who defeated Argilac the Arrogant at Storm's End. Oris then took the sigil, words, and castle of House Durandon as his own. And he even wed Argilac's daughter, Argella. Now, that's a very complicated story, and it's very interesting, and I, I suggest you look up a little bit more about that. But the most relevant and important thing to note about Oris Baratheon was that he was rumored to be the bastard half-brother of Aegon Targaryen because of how close they were both in youth and in adulthood. Now, really, we only know what we know about Oris from very kind of small pieces of information here and there. And we know that Oris was bastard-born by a mother that we have zero information about. Now, we know this from the World History Book, and really all it does say in the World History Book is that we know nothing about her. So that's, that's where we're at with his mother. Although, it's widely considered that he was the dragon seed of Arion Targaryen. Again, that bastard half-brother of Aegon Targaryen, born of the same father. Now, a dragon seed is the term for a Valyrian child who's born as a product of First Night. And First Night is a rite that Lors used to possess that would allow them to sleep with a new bride on her wedding night. It's really gross, and despite it being widely frowned upon and detested in Westeros, this was not the case on Dragonstone, as the Targaryens had already ruled there for hundreds of years. So, aside from the couple of things that I've just laid out, the small tidbits of evidence we have to suggest this, Jaehaerys I, son of Aegon the Conqueror, is actually the strongest proof that we have, because he openly regarded Oris Baratheon as his grandfather's bastard half-brother, regarding him as family, essentially. So all of this is to say that King Robert Baratheon, the man who made it his life's mission to wipe out the Targaryen bloodline, actually shared in that same bloodline 
And the irony here is that Robert didn't fully succeed in eliminating said bloodline until he and his brothers had died, though his bastards would ultimately carry it forward to an extent. And so even with nearly 300 years of dilution, he shared the blood of old Valyria with his greatest enemies, who were, in all actuality, his distant relatives. And when you consider these facts, along with the fact that Robert's rebellion was all based on an enormous lie, it greatly heightens the already tragic events of King Robert's story and life. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Rissling, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Ruminations from the Realm here on Casterly Talk. Thanks, Thomas. Oh, man, I love that one because it is all true. Uh, I uh, just had the pleasure of reading uh, Fire and Blood by George R. R. Martin, The History of the Targaryens, part one. We got a long way to go. Uh, And that's one of the things that really becomes apparent, not just what Thomas is talking about, about the actual kind of relation, the blood relation of Baratheon and Targaryen, but that the, the Baratheons very much... Oris and everyone that came after for a time very much factored into the events and very much factored into the successes and at times failures of the Targaryens. And I think Thomas is right. I think Robert Baratheon, there's a tragedy to the character of Rob, but there's a tragedy to um, his downfall specifically. You know, I think he could have been a great king. I think he, he was the star athlete that everyone loved. And then he got into power and it all went to crap. Uh, but, his uh, vices got the best of him, but also his his passions and maybe his blindness. I believe in my heart, and you guys can tell me what you think. I believe in my heart that Robert doesn't believe what he tells himself about Rhaegar Targaryen. I think at one point it might have made sense to him, but I think he was so shocked and heartbroken, but I think shocked that Lyanna, one he loved, chose another man that he could not accept it. And then he pre- created this, this answer in his head, this story he believed that then the entire realm believed. It was a lie that started a war, that started a rebellion, that toppled a dynasty, as Jamie, Cersei, and Tywin would say. Um, but I like, I say this, I, actually, I, lo- I like the character Robert Baratheon, and I love him in moments. And he's talk, going back to our discussion during the Wildlings, and you learn that the Wildlings aren't the Wildlings. You learn that Robert Baratheon isn't necessarily the good guy. It's positioned as such early on, right? Yeah, he's a king. He's got to make some tough decisions. Yeah, he's got a wife who's uh, cheating on him with her, her brother. Yeah, then you, he's friends with Ned, and we like Ned. And then it slowly starts to unravel. I don't think, I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think Robert Baratheon's a bad guy. But you start to unravel a lot of who he is. And I think Barristan Selmy later on says that, very honestly, he was a bad king. And he didn't have to be. But I think he was brokenhearted because of that shock. And that uh, goes back to Leanna. And I think it dominated everything he ever did. I don't think he cared. I think he wanted to go to an early grave. He was bored with ruling. We know that. He wanted to fight. He got some fights along the way. The Grey Joe Rebellion gave him a, a little bit of a, a little quench of his bloodthirst. But there's a there's there's something about Robert Baratheon. Just you go back to that moment. You go back to the Trident. That that was it. That was it for him. Second Princess Bride, Men in Black, talking to uh, Inigo Montoya. You got your revenge. Now we're gonna do. I never really thought about it. 
Have you thought of piracy? Uh, Robert Brathian didn't have that. He became king, and I don't think he really cared. I don't know if he even really wanted it. He wanted to kill Rhaegar. And that carried over to the Targaryens, which didn't quite happen. And it was his downfall, part of his downfall, a large part of his downfall. I think it also created that rift between him and Ned that caused some problems and and, and, and flames uh, a lot of the tensions there. And as Thomas points out, in a weird way, he was fighting his own blood. Baratheon and Targaryen. Nowadays, especially when the show and the story begins, we think of Stark and Baratheon. That's the tag team, right? Going into this main event that when we're starting season one, that's what we're looking at. We got the Starks and we got the Baratheons. The Baratheons are the kings, man. Yeah, Robert's got a bad situation going on. But we like his brother. His brother, we're rooting for Renly. I think there's some truth. We look at Renly and Ned, Ned, maybe you should have believed uh, Renly and, and thrown uh, thrown your lot in behind Renly. We might have had a different situation. That's one of my favorite what ifs. You know, there's a lot of what ifs in season one. But one of them is, what if Ned just say, you know what, Renly, you're right. Your brother's who, who he is. Stannis shows up. It changes what we think about the Baratheons. But I still think, and this isn't just me as a Stannis fan, I still think in season two, you're looking at Stannis. And he hasn't done a lot of the really bad things that he will do eventually. Smoke baby demon killing his brother ain't great, but it ain't burning your daughter, right? And I love Stannis, but, but his loss of humanity... It's one of the reasons I love the character and the story. I think it's a lesson. But in season two, we're still thinking Baratheon, man. Ned believed in Stannis. He is the king by, by right. So I think we're rooting for him rooting for him a little bit. The Battle of Blackwater Bay is really interesting. Because the Starks are reeling. The Starks are down. Stannis has no love for Rob right now, but he's a Baratheon. His brother has died. He killed his brother? Yeah, we're going to overlook that right now. We want him to defeat the dastardly Lannisters. And there's a lot of little things along the way that start to make you not change your opinion on the Lannisters. Tyrion, we get right away, is his own thing. Jamie, we're growing with. And people, myself included, love Cersei, but we kind of love... Love Cersei because she is so bad. Watching her take out the Sept of Baelor again the other night, it's like, this is the best. But dear God, she's horrible. <laughs> but at the same time, you understand where Cersei's coming from. But I think the Battle of Blackwater Bay is one of the first times that you're really wondering who you root for. Who do you root for? Baratheon was a name that meant something. It carried a respect, not just in the land, but for us as viewers. We kind of believe the lie that Robert told everybody, that Robert believed in, that Robert convinced himself of. But back in the day, it was Targaryen and Baratheon, and they got a lot of things done. The story of Oris Baratheon is interesting. We haven't got it yet. I don't necessarily think we're going to get it in the prequel series because that Age of Heroes is a long time to play with. 
but we'll see. Maybe one day we will get more, but if you haven't read Fire and Blood, you should absolutely check it out. It's one of my favorite reading experiences for Game of Thrones. Uh, and check out The World of Ice and Fire as well. Thomas mentioned that and got a lot of research for the Ruminations of the Realm. Hey, that is Casterly Talk for this week. We appreciate you listening, checking in. More to come as we get ready. Join the conversation on Twitter at Casterly Talk. Uh, reach out to me at Ken Knapsack. Uh, Lon Harris will be back. Rachel Cushion uh, will be back. Michelle Boyd will be back. Andres Cabrera will be back all through the season, uh, all throughout the time. Um, and uh, Ruminations of Rome and your thoughts, your questions. We want to hear them. We want to know. Let's get ready for Season 8 together. And uh, don't forget, you can uh, support Casually Talk directly on Anchor. You can also leave a message, uh, a, vo- a voice message, and we'll start playing some of those, too, as we uh, gear up. Get the app. If you have the Anchor app, that's the best way you can do it there. And also, uh, I'm proud to announce my first book, Why We Love Star Wars, uh, The Great Moments Have Built a Galaxy Far, Far Away. It's available for pre-order right now on Amazon ahead of its May 15th release. Check it out. All right, that is it. I'm going to go watch some Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm.